Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Two weeks ago on Pentecost Day, I said that Pentecost is the longest of our church seasons. It's going to last now until Advent, which this year begins the last week of November. So we've got that long, and we're going to be in the same season of Pentecost. In fact, you're going to see the pastor's green stoles. When you're back in the building, you'll see the green banners and the paraments. And you might get a little bit sick and tired of green and think, we've got to have a new color. It's got to be a new season at some point here. We're going to live with green until Reformation Sunday and All Saints Sunday. And then we're back to green for just a little while after that. I hope by the end of my message today... You'll understand the importance of our green Pentecost season. Green, the color of growth, the color of propagation, sending the word out into the world. That's the season that we're in. So hopefully you won't get tired of green as the days and the weeks and the months progress. Hopefully you'll get even more excited and energized by it. My wife, Kinlan, and I like sports movies, but very specifically, we like those underdog sports movies with a, a good moral and story. So some of them would be Hoosiers with Gene Hackman or Rudy, Sean Astin, The Natural with Robert Redford, The Blind Side, Sandra Bullock, one of my favorites, of course, and Remember the Titans, Denzel Washington. And I suspect that with our televised sports seasons mostly being repeats for the time, that you're going to be looking for some of these, possibly the, some of these same movies to stream on your favorite service. In fact, did you know that Google and Siri will actually tell you where you can find and stream your favorite movies? So let's see if this will work. Hey, Google, where can I stream the moody movie Rudy right now? Okay, so it tells me Amazon has it. I can rent it from there. Or right now I can see it free on Hulu. There's a free trial. So lots of different places. YouTube, uh, Amazon, Netflix, uh, maybe. So you can ask your devices where you can see these movies, but don't rely on them too heavily. You still have to go and find them and choose them and pay for them if you're willing to do that. Now, something that almost all of these sports movies have in common is that one single scene. You know the scene I'm talking about. The one where the coach gets the boys or the girls in the huddle, maybe on the sideline, maybe in the locker room, and gives them that inspirational message that then has them going out and winning or completing whatever the moral of the movie would have been. Well, Jesus, in his opening section here of Matthew chapter 10 is doing the same thing with his disciples. He has them in a huddle, if you will. And when he talks to them, he kind of reviews his team members. He tells them what their resources are, what the mission is that they're going to go and accomplish, even talks about their target audience. And sometimes, like spectators in a ball game, we will read or listen to passages read in the Bible and think, how in the world do they impact us? How do they affect me in 2020 in Hopkins, Minnesota, or the surrounding communities, or wherever you're viewing us from today? Well, often we feel like spectators, but really, that's not the case. Sometimes we feel we're only on the bleachers, but friends, that is not what being a Christian is all about. The ministry of Christ's church is something we can all take part in, and we should all take part in. 
There's plenty of things that you and I can take away from today's lessons, today's gospel message. So I want to talk first about team resources. What resources did Jesus' team have? Well, it's here first how Jesus called them and got them together. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, 12 is a number that's used throughout Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, and it's a very significant number in Hebrew. It's often used in the Bible to represent a large body of people made up of different kinds. Did you know that not only were there 12 tribes or sons of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, but his uncle Ishmael, Abraham's first son, also had 12 sons. Yeah, Genesis chapter 25 tells us that information. So initially, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, they came into the promised land after their 40-year trek in the wilderness. And they were organized into these 12 separate geographical uh, representations of the land. Those different areas of influence where each of the sons would be a, a chief basically, over their people. Now, these distinct but related areas represented the larger nation of Israel to God. They all followed God, even though they were separate in the ways that they handled their internal affairs. Now, there's a, a biblical understanding that the 12 disciples of Jesus in our reading are both in a real and symbolic way that they offer a replacement to the original 12 chiefs, the original 12 tribes, which had been set up about 1,400 years before the time of the story from Matthew takes place. Using Jesus' phrasing, I would say the 12 disciples are a fulfillment or a completion of God's plan to make for himself a people who would one day spread his message, his gospel, out to the whole world. So the promised land, the, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that all the forefathers wanted to get back to, Canaan would be that starting point. And later, Jesus fulfills that work by training and then sending out his 12 representatives to lead a new body of believers, one that we know is called the church. Now, Jesus even promised the 12 disciples that they'd have a special role in the new heaven. Although this passage is, is a bit tough to understand and it's kind of rife with unexplained biblical questions. But here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But this is getting a little further ahead of the story than I want to get right now. For now, Jesus sends the 12 out in a very limited fashion. To these 12, Jesus gives authority and even power the right and the ability to command evil spirits to go away, as well as a supernatural right and power to heal every kind of disease and disorder there was in that day. Friends, that's some power. Just think if Jesus said to us today, you can cure cancer, you can cure leukemia, all the diseases and afflictions, my people can send them all away. That's some kind of power. And that's the kind of power that God continues to have and has always possessed. And he can give it to whoever he wishes. 
Now, every illness and infirmity, that phrase is one that's been used earlier in Matthew as he's gotten us to this point, Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9, using this phrase to indicate what Jesus had been doing. Jesus had been modeling healing and cleansing in front of his disciples who were with him, and now he asked them, expected them to go out and do the same. Now, people today would ask and have asked for centuries is this resource, this authority for healing, is it something that only the disciples had? Or is it a resource for his followers here 2,000 years later? Well, in a sense, this kind of authority to heal every disease is something that that particular team of 12 had, which doesn't exist, at least not in that large magnitude as it did back then. It doesn't exist today. But no, I'm not discounting modern-day healing miracles or saying with certainty that faith healings don't happen. In fact, a seminary classmate of mine, he had a good friend who was apparently a very successful Lutheran faith healer. But since New Testament times, when these things were written about Jesus and that original team of 12, healing miracles don't seem to be the prominent way for Christ's church to be reaching out into the world. No, we, we do it in other ways. The takeaway here, though, should be that the same spirit which empowered the original team, that we've got it in us, too. It may not look exactly the same, but the spirit of God is not any weaker today than it was in those 12 followers of Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus says at the end of Matthew, all authority and power has been given unto me, therefore go into all the world and make disciples. He expected us to continue to understand that we have that power and continue to go do those things that he has given to do us. We may not have the same ability to do miracles left and right like the apostles apparently did, but our Lord still asks from us and gives us the authority and power in unlimited measure to do the specific things he wants from each of his children today. Those things that will make disciples of all nations and Jesus, if he's going to ask us to do a task, he's certainly going to give us the power and wisdom and insight to do those things. We just need to call on his name. So I've talked about the team resources. Next, I want to talk about the team makeup. Who made up this team? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, I know I'm repeating verse 1, but it's kind of important he called to them, his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. But here's the important part. The names of the 12 apostles are these. You notice Jesus changes from calling them disciples, a Greek word which means one who is learning, to now calling them apostles. One who has been commissioned, a worker who now goes out. There's four places in the Bible where this list of apostles is listed. It's here, it's in Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, and Acts chapter 1. And from these records we can see that some of the apostles went by more than one name, especially Judas, and not Judas Iscariot. This Judas was also named Thaddeus, Jude, and Labaius. He had lots of names. There's been much study and debate about the cohesion of these lists and how do you say that this list from Mark and how it differences, differs in all these other names. But where discrepancies exist, the biblical scholars also come with an informed explanation for those discrepancies. 
I do want to point out one interesting view of these 12 followers, though, and what it does mean and does not mean for Jesus' followers today. We often hear that Jesus had with him a larger group of disciples, of followers, several places in the Gospels and Acts. In Luke chapter 10, it says that Jesus sent out an additional 70 disciples, not including his 12, and he would, they were to go out to the towns that Jesus would soon be visiting. In Luke chapter 6, we hear, When morning came, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him, chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. From Acts chapter 1, we know that at least two of these followers had been with Jesus from the very beginning. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, and another man, also known by multiple names. It's called Joseph, also Barsabbas, also known as Justice. And in Acts chapter 2, we know that there were 120 followers and believers of Jesus there with the 12. We're also aware of later apostles and the, the letters later on in the New Testament whose names would be added to these reserved for special work or commissioning. So we add Paul. We add Timothy. We add James, the half-brother of Jesus. We add Barnabas and a few more names that you only hear once in the biblical narrative. So we now have talked about the resources. We know who this A-team for Jesus is. Now I want to move to their target audience. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, why did Jesus tell his disciples to only focus their ministry to the Jews? Avoid the Samaritans and Gentiles, he said. Well, Jesus limited the scope of their sending for reasons that were as much practical as they were symbolic or theological in nature. If we go back to the Tower of Babel about 4,000 years ago, God split the world population into nearly 80 distinct language ethnic people groups. And I won't go into great detail about how biblical scholars came up with this factor, this number of 80. But they say in the context, they look at the listings of Noah's sons in Genesis chapter 10, and that's how they come up with this number of 80. So God at the Tower of Babel distributed these people over the face of the earth, confused their languages. So now out of that number, that large number, 80, God chose to start a covenant relationship with who? With how many of them? One, and only one of these lingual ethnic groups. Abraham and his descendants, the Jews who spoke Hebrew. God stated his long-term plan to Abraham in Genesis 12, chapter 12, saying this, And I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Genesis laid it out. Abraham's people would be the one chosen out of the larger number to be those who would be Jesus or be God's representative. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And 2,000 years later, we see the Son, Jesus, the arbiter and executor of that very covenant, continued to bless the Jews first, just as God had told Abraham. 
so that the blessings could flow from the Jews and then out into everybody else, all the other nations of mankind of which you and I are a part. So response number one to why Jesus would limit the mission work of the apostles to the Jewish people was to fulfill God's covenant promise. This is God's faithfulness to his promise from millennia past. In order, Jews first, then the Gentiles. And we'll notice that when Jesus sends out his disciples a second time, he doesn't restrict them to only talk to the Jews anymore. And later on in Acts chapter 1, he explicitly tells them to minister in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's another practical reason why Jesus sent his disciples to the Jews first. Imagine if I were to tell you, all of you who are listening today and watching today, that I'm giving you a missionary job, and guess where you're going? This is going to be so exciting. You're going to go to the Zosha tribe in South Africa. How do you think you'd do living out in the desert in tents, eating grub worms and speaking a language that mainly consisted of clicks and pops for its alphabet? <laughs> you would say, no way, Pastor Dan. I don't have the qualifications to do that. That'd be really hard. You got to remember that Jesus' chosen disciples, most of them were uneducated fishermen with absolutely no experience in ministry. Would you send men like that into some sort of intense cross-cultural missionary setting right off the bat? No. You'd choose someone later like Paul who had some of those skills and abilities. You'd send him out, but not these 12, at least not originally. So reason number two to limit the apostles' mission work to the Jews was that Jesus, like any good mentor, he asked his disciples to get their ministry feet wet with people who were like them. And like any good mentor, he had already modeled everything that he was asking them to do, preaching and teaching folks with the same background, with the same foundation and the same Hebrew scriptures, what you and I would call the Old Testament. Next, I want to move on to the task that Jesus was giving them. Verse 7 says this, As you go, Jesus says, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And then he says, freely you have received, freely give. Friends, this was the same message that John the baptizer had given. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was the same message that Jesus' followers had seen him preach over and over again. And now he's telling his disciples, you go and tell people the same message. Don't confuse them with anything more. Just tell them that. This message was to the Jews that the kingdom of heaven, the reign of that promised Messiah from heaven, that it was here now, that that kingdom was being established now. And then everything that flows from that understanding that they needed to repent. They needed to get themselves right with God. They needed to get ready for the appearance of the Messiah, however he appeared, and be ready to submit to the Messiah's will, to do and obey what the Messiah asked of them. Now notice that this message was not one that would take the Jewish people by surprise. This was someone that they had been waiting for for thousands of years. This message of the kingdom of heaven coming near, it was uniquely suited to the Jewish people and only the Jewish people, the single people group who, since God had thwarted the plans at the Tower of Babel project, the only group who had been prepared through the many prophets of God to know the backstory, the biblical narrative of this proclamation. 
to know these truths. The truth that there is one God and only one God. The truth that this God had established a standard of good and evil that had been violated by mankind. And that God had decreed eternal death as the sentence of justice to everyone. But that God had also initiated a way to be reconciled through the death of a substitute, going all the way back to the sacrificial system, all the way forward to Jesus. The truth that there would be a descendant from Adam and Eve and from Abraham and of David who would provide this way for the people to be reconciled with God. The truth that this Messiah would suffer God's wrath on our behalf. The truth that this Messiah was to be the one who was sent, who was proclaimed to come. He was to be listened to, obeyed, and followed. All of this would not catch the Jews by surprise. They knew all of this by heart. They understood this message that the kingdom of heaven had drawn near, and they would understood what it represented. But notice also the disciples, the apostles, weren't sent out only to tell. They were also sent out to do to heal, to cleanse, to raise the dead, all the same miraculous things that they witnessed Jesus do, and now they had the power and authority to do them. Well, this team of 12 apostles has gone on to glory sometime before, but we are the players who are left on the field now. We have the same God. We have the same resources available, but our target audience and our targeted message here at Zion Lutheran and Hopkins, it differs a bit from the 12 sent by Jesus in our verses from Matthew chapter 10. We know that there are Christian groups that minister to the Jews, groups of Messianic Jews, like Jews for Jesus or Chosen People Ministries. There are Christians that go and focus on the supernatural or action component of evangelism. The miracles, the healings, the outward-facing spiritual gifts that each one of us has. This is groups like the Charismatics or the Pentecostals. They would focus on that area. But friends, our mission here in Hopkins, Minnesota, is sharing the biblical gospel-centered truth to a community and culture that is our very own as is each congregation out there. Each Christian church around the world has its own unique set of people and ideas and ideologies. But we are to minister to a culture that is like ours. Just as Jesus initially sent the 12 out to their neighborhoods, same people like them. You and I then must grow in our experience of sharing the gospel, to share it with your neighbor but then also find ways to push beyond that, push outside your neighborhood, outside of your experience and culture, and share with people of different cultures, just as Jesus eventually asked of his disciples and asks of us. The friends, I know that sharing the gospel in the face of everything that is going on in our neighborhoods and communities, it's just so hard. First, we had the COVID pandemic, and now since May 25th, a new pandemic the protests and disunity that the George Floyd killing has caused. There's an article I read recently about all these goings on, and it accurately said of white evangelical Christians, that's you and me, it's pretty much who we are, said of us, many of us don't know how to talk about it all. Yeah. We're understandably nervous about discussing, discussing racial reconciliation because there are just so many landmines. You have to be so careful. You have to choose your words carefully, and then we fear of saying something wrong. 
Sometimes we retreat from conversations because we just don't know what to say. All it takes is a video on Facebook highlighting a racial incident or blunt words from a minority friend, a battle on social media, or a theological discussion on justice, theological discussion on grace and mercy. And sometimes the fear and division just deepen if we don't say things in the right way. And what's more, when our brothers and sisters are wounded by racial insensitivity or mistreatment, they also may not know how to express their hurt without being misunderstood or marginalized off to the side. Perhaps in expressing sorrow, maybe that's resulted in them being maligned or been accused of playing the race card. They might conclude it's better just to keep quiet, to bury the pain, to bury it again. You see, without compassion from their fellow believers, these folks, they get frustrated and they get bitter and that so easily takes root. And then, my friends, there's the wonderful American democratic system that I would say has been maybe the most partisan in a bad way and divisive time than in any other time in our 244-year nation history. You can't agree with one perspective because you're a Republican. You have to agree with that viewpoint if you're a Democrat. And have you noticed how the media always is sure to share the political alignment of each and every person they're reporting on? And then rather than simply reporting the news, they often no longer even pretend to be unbiased. They tell us what our attitude and our response should be to each of the sensationalized stories. You might be thinking right now, Pastor Dan, that last part sounded more like a rant than a sermon. Well... Maybe it was. My friends, this perspective that Christians must continue to see from always, the direction that we must march and the truths that we must cling to, they have to come from a single source of goodness, grace, truth, and love. We must, as Christians in the season of Pentecost, not be swayed by the left or the right or the supposed center on any issue. Friends, you and I look to this book and this book only. We look to what God revealed about himself in the pages of our Bible. And we follow no elected official, no party or media-influenced opinion unless it follows in thought, word, and deed what we find here. What Jesus has tasked us to do. Friends, that's how we get through these tough times. This is our answer to anyone who asks. So let us in this season of Pentecost, this season of green and growth and proliferation of the gospel, let us talk about, let us publicize, even expose or sensationalize in a good way the kingdom of heaven and that it has come. And then let us also demonstrate the kingdom of heaven on earth through our own actions, whether it's literally asking God to care for our sick people praying for peace with all of our neighbors, or doing the practical things that, that are the hand and feet of Christ that will cause blessing and healing to all the lost people so that they can come to know the God that you and I know so well and that they may do it regardless of race or culture or color. Friends, let's you and I follow the example of Christ and be that leading example for all those who need to hear his is a message of love. His is a message of grace and mercy and peace. In Jesus' name, I ask all these things. Amen.